Welcome to the third of three parts of this roundtable discussion with the faculty of the Educational Initiative, Management of Hyponatremia in Hospitalized Patients, Role of Pharmacists in Improving Patient Care. These podcasts were produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by an educational grant from Otsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated. Joseph Dast is chair of the initiative, and he is the moderator of this discussion. And he is joined by Michael Cowley and Henry Cohen. Well, hyponatremia uh, provides an, a number of opportunities for pharmacists to become involved in that. There are a long list of drugs that can cause the condition, as well as many drugs, including fluids, that are used to manage uh, patients with hyponatremia. Now, Dr. Cohen, uh, the VAPTANs, um, as was mentioned, are associated with a number of clinically relevant drug interactions. How should clinicians manage a patient who is to receive conivaptan or tolvaptan along with a macrolide antibiotic, an SSRI, or an anti-epileptic drug such as phenytoin? You know, Joe, looking back from a historical perspective, when we looked at cytochrome P450 drug interactions, we looked at induction and inhibition. And over time, we've delineated the five primary isoenzymes, CYP3A4, 2D6, 2C9, 2C19, and 1A2. And today, we have gotten to the point where we're able to look at a drug that might be a P450 inhibitor and indicate whether it is a potent inhibitor or moderately potent inhibitor. This is a new area of science that has not been well delineated over time. Now, both conivaptan and tolvaptan are cytochrome P450-384 substrates. So clearly, the CYP3A4 system is associated with the greatest abundance of drug interactions because of the particular isoenzyme. When looking at the macrolide antimicrobials, one has to delineate which macrolides are potent 3A4 inhibitors and which are are moderate inhibitors and which spare. So in general, clarithromycin, telithromycin, these are potent inhibitors and are frankly contraindicated with the VAPTANs. The moderate inhibitor would be erythromycin, preferably should be avoided, but one can make dosage adjustments and still utilize both agents. And preferably, when looking at the macrolides, azithromycin would be your agent of choice as it generally spares the cytochrome P450-3A4 system. When looking at the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, a potent inhibitor would be nefazidone and, again, contraindicated with the VAPTANs. On the other hand, a moderate inhibitor would be fluvoxamine or fluoxetine. Generally, it would be preferred to avoid the concomitant use of those agents or make dosing adjustments. And here, too, preferably the agents of choice would be agents like escitalopram or citalopram that do not inhibit the CYP3A4 system. When looking at an antiepileptic agent such as phenytoin, several of the antiepileptic agents are potent inducers of the P450 system. They're general inducers and have strong effects on CYP3A4. And these are your classic broad-spectrum antiepileptic agents, and they include phenytoin and phosphenytoin, phenobarb and primidone, carbamazepine, and to a lesser extent, oxcarbazepine. In general, because of the potent induction effect of these drugs, it is preferable to avoid utilizing those agents concomitantly with the VAPTANs. Well, this is a complex condition with respect to the therapy and consequences thereof. Dr. Kali, what advice could you give us for monitoring inpatients being treated for hyponatremia? 
Sure, Joe. Um, hyponatremia, as I previously mentioned, some of the monitoring, but let me enhance it a little bit more. Primarily, as we do, we look at the serum sodium level, which we're looking at 135. But one of the most important things that we can monitor in a patient is their neurological status. Uh, the neurological status will actually determine our treatment regimen if we're going to be less aggressive or more aggressive. So relatively what we want to do is we want to monitor the neurological status. In the hospital setting, uh, the nurses are there. They can monitor the patient every hour if needed to. But uh, that's very important to determine if their patient starts to get more compromised in regards to neurological status or they're starting to get better, uh, depending upon which direction we're going to go. So neurological status is absolutely paramount. Besides that, we get our serum sodium. We want to get between one 135 to 145. And if it is less than 135, it's okay. We just have to monitor the patient for any type of signs and symptoms. Beyond that, we could also measure other things, such as the osmolality of the, of the patient, meaning the serum osmolality, urine osmolality. We could also measure the urine sodium. These other markers are important, but usually what happens is they're usually used more from a diagnostic perspective. And usually the physicians, such as nephrologists and so forth, were ordered those type of labs to help us narrow down the etiology of the hyponatremia. So primarily from a pharmacist standpoint, we would like to keep an eye on the neurological status, of course the serum sodium level, and we could also, like I said before, as secondary monitoring, the serum osmolality, the urine osmolality, and the urine sodium. Well, the ultimate goal in our therapy is for our patients to be discharged uh, successfully to home. So is it safe for the patient to use a VAPTAN for chronic administration? Joe, when talking about chronic management of hyponatremia, the VAPTAN that we're really going to focus on is Tolvaptan because Tolvaptan is available orally. One particular trial, the saltwater trial, assessed the safety and long-term effects on sodium seen with Tolvaptan. And Tolvaptan was shown to be effective in patients who had mild or marked hyponatremia, and it was shown to have a prolonged and sustained effect that lasted for up to four years. When looking at the overall adverse effects and, and side effects that patients should be counseled on regarding Tolvaptan over time, probably some of the most common include nausea, seen in about 20% of patients, clearly uh, dry mouth and thirst and asthenia has been seen with patients chronically while using Tolvaptan. Some other side effects that were reported include hyperglycemia and pyrexia. It's also important to note that Tolvaptan is not scored, cannot be crushed, should not be chewed. And since patients will be using this chronically in the uh, community setting or long-term care setting, it's important to think about some other interactions with products that they can get over the counter. So clearly agents like San John's wort, which can induce the cytochrome P450 system, or a drug like echinacea, which can inhibit the P450 system, uh, should be agents that should be avoided in patients taking Tolvaptan. And lastly, Tolvaptan has a bioavailability of about 40%, and that would indicate to us that because it is a substrate of the CYP3A4 system, that it is significantly metabolized in the gut. So grapefruit juice can and does interact with Tolvaptan, and the general recommendation would be to avoid grapefruit juice while utilizing Tolvaptan. Hyponatremia, as we've been talking about, has some important clinical implications to the patient and economic implications to the healthcare system. There are drugs that we use to treat patients often in combination, as well as drugs that can cause hyponatremia. So it provides an opportunity for clinical pharmacists to become involved both at the bedside, whether it be on the ward or in the intensive care unit, 
but also uh, we've talked a little bit about guidelines. And unfortunately, there are no nationally published guidelines on the management of hyponatremia. As such, it would be great if the pharmacist could be the uh, catalyst at their institution to, to review the literature, to gather the troops, and develop a protocol, a multidisciplinary protocol, on the optimal management of hypotetremia, and to test that out, make sure it's working, and to update it as new data become available. As part of this topic, it's important for pharmacists to keep abreast of treatment options on the horizon. Dr. Callie, can you give us a brief update on any VAPTANs that are in the investigational stages of development, such as lixivaptan and or sativaptan or others? Sure, Joe. Lixivaptan and sativaptan are two primary VAPTANs that have been uh, investigational studies. Both of these agents have been extensively studied in Phase two trials, and also uh, they've been looked at in Phase three trials. Uh, two studies that I could briefly discuss in regards to both of these drugs is the first one I'd like to talk about is a sativaptan study that was actually done by uh, Dr. Supert in the Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology. This was actually done in 2006, and what was interesting, it was a study where they looked at about 34 patients who had SIADH, and remember SIADH was that euvolemic hyponatremic state. And what they did was they gave sativaptan in doses of 25 and 50 milligrams per day orally once a day. And they looked at the increase in serum sodium over time. And the majority of the patients had a 5 milliequivalent per liter rise in their serum sodium. And what happened was patients who were on the 25 milligram dose, about 79% of the patients achieved that 5 milliequivalent per liter rise in their serum sodium. Patients who were getting 50 milligrams per day orally, uh, 83% of the patients actually raised their serum sodium by 5 milliequivalents. So sativaptan has been very, very successful, at least in some of the phase 3 trials. Uh, switching gears a little bit and talk about lixivaptan. Lixivaptan, again, this drug, there was an interesting study by Abraham, which was in the journal the American College of Cardiology, which was in 2006. And actually, they did a dose-ranging study, and they actually did it in patients who had class 2 and class 3 heart failure. This was kind of interesting because they were looking at the aquaretic effect. I know we didn't talk much about aquaresis, but we know that the, the VAPTANs primarily um, have us uh, excrete free water. And this Abraham study, they looked at about 49 patients, and these patients received a dose ranging from 10 milligrams of lixivaptan all the way up to 400 milligrams orally. And the patients that got 400 milligrams once a day, they excreted uh, approximately 3.9 liters of free water in the first 24 hours. So these drugs are very, very exciting in regards to where they're at in their process of potentially uh, being approved by the FDA in the near future. The focus of our discussion to date has mainly been on the inpatient management and monitoring of our patients. But as was said earlier, there will be individuals who go home on uh, chronic therapy for hyponatremia. What are the issues of monitoring serum sodium levels in the patient that's at home? Joe, I would suggest that once a patient is on a stable dose of tolvaptan, I would recommend that monthly sodium, serum sodium levels should be done. Oh, Henry, you bring up an interesting point. What if we have a patient who, it's the summertime, and you know, we may have a, a person who, maybe elderly patient, who may be um, working out in the yard and loves to work out in the yard and you know, they become dehydrated fairly quickly or potentially hyponatremia can develop. What should we do for those patients? I would say in a setting like that, uh, clearly a patient has to be able to detect 
that they're thirsty and has to replenish their fluids. But if that becomes uh, more of a problem initially, maybe every week or every two weeks uh, for a short period of time. But I think it's important that somebody be able to recognize that they're thirsty um, and have a dry mouth and, and drink fluids. So relatively, uh, the, the key point is uh, educating the patients to make sure that they are aware of the signs and symptoms of a hyponatremic state. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us for this roundtable discussion on the management of hyponatremia. This concludes the third and last part of the roundtable discussion. A web-based continuing pharmacy education activity based on the Mid-Year Symposium will be available in February 2012. To access this activity and other educational opportunities on this topic, visit the web portal at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash hyponatremia.